Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast. I got to be honest, I've got today's guest has among the most strange and unique giveaways ever on my show. I love it when authors give signed copies of their books. He's got something better. He's got a 4.8 billion year space rock. You'll have to wait for the end of the podcast. It's worth doing that. Uh, But his name is Brian Keating. His book is Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. The thing I really like about this interview is he's unbelievably forthright and honest on how he went about trying to go for the Nobel Prize, the mistakes he made, and the glorious, wonderful mistakes he made. Uh, really circles it back well to education, so for those reasons, I really love the show. But again, listen to the entire thing towards the end. Really, really unique insights and giveaways. So, enough gabbing. I think you're going to love this episode. As always, we grow because we get recommendations to people like Brian. Uh, although we were lucky because Brian found us in this case and uh, humbled that he did so. So if you uh, have any suggestions for people on the show, go ahead and email me, dwetrick at startedupfoundation.org, or you can always leave a comment for us on our Facebook page. All right, let's get right to it. Brian Keating. All right, now I'm joined by Brian Keating. He is the author of Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. Brian, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's really awesome to be here, Don. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so uh, we share a decent amount in common, uh, especially our, our love for uh, innovation, entrepreneurialism. Uh, so when you reached out, I was flattered uh, because I started looking at some things you've worked on and, and it's amazing. So let's, let's jump right in. Uh, give, give us a little bit of background before we, you know, get into the book. Yeah. So my, uh, you know, history is really uh, deeply intertwined with the history of the universe, you know, not to sound too grandiose, but, um, but actually my deepest passion in life is trying to understand what happened in the universe. And that means really kind of, you can't do it alone. No one goes into the universe alone. And really the scientific tradition is one of educator and student and mentor and apprentice since the beginning of science itself. And so therefore trying to go back to the very birth pangs of the Big Bang, which is what maybe we'll chat about uh, a little bit today, is really driven by a need to engage the greatest and most prolific and creative minds on earth, which today more and more being the young people I get to mentor and befriend. I'm glad you you was talking then about the the mentorship part and and you know the need for the student innovators. Uh, talk to me a little bit about some of the work you are doing with um, you know, some of the people you're mentoring. Yeah, so we build telescopes, myself and my colleagues, that are located uh, on every corner of the Earth, and we have collaborators literally on all seven continents, including Antarctica, where I've spent a good chunk of my life. And that is because we're trying to capture the wispiest, most faint, delicate imprints of the aftermath of the Big Bang, which you might think of as a very violent event, and indeed it was, but it occurred 13 billion, 700 million years ago. And because of that, and because of the subsequent expansion and cooling of the universe, the signals that we see are incredibly faint. And so it requires tremendous uh, tremendous abilities 
by all the team members that we have. And I would say the average age of our team members who are mostly students getting their PhD degrees or graduate student doctorates around the world, we have 200 and plus of those, of those types. And these are the greatest young minds in the world. And what their job is, is nothing less than trying to discover something new about the universe that no one in human history has ever learned about prior to their entry into this field. So it's an amazing opportunity for young people with technical, mathematical, computational, analytic minds, but even for those that are interested in kind of the broader impacts, the, the wonder, the awe, the majesty of the universe. It's very artistic. And we also have room for people that are interested in kind of the managerial oversight, logistics, uh, because we're building, you know, these miniature, you know, the, the universe doesn't give up her secrets easily. And so we have to mount each telescope is like mounting a tiny little, um, you know, peaceful military campaign, sometimes to the very top of the world in, in the Andes Mountains and in Chile, almost 18,000 feet up is our newest project, the Simons Observatory. Wow. And that will be one of the highest telescopes ever built by humankind. Man. Uh, so let me, let me let me play the role of the naysayer. Why do we need this? Why, 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 do we, why do we need to know the origins of the universe? Yeah. So I would say, you know, why do we need a Picasso painting or, you know, why do we need a Rembrandt or, uh, or, or any you know, work of art? And people don't think of science as part of culture, but of course it is. Uh, there are many people who think it's an essential part of culture and really that it represents the highest intellect achievement that the human brain, this three pound supercomputer that sits on everybody's shoulders listening to this podcast. And because of that, I think it touches on the deepest urges that human beings have since we emerged from caves and <laughs> our Neanderthal days, 100,000 years or more ago in, in, in Europe, or even out of Africa, 3 million years ago, that that was one of the most primal urges, right? I mean, you only know your history because someone told it to you. And, uh, and that might be your parent or a friend or something like that. In our case, we have to be our own teachers and we have to go out into the universe to discover and answer the question of how did we get here? What is the universe made of? What's going to happen? And perhaps, though not guaranteed at all, why are we here? Why is there something in the universe rather than nothing? I think that there are no more kind of awe-inspiring questions. And human beings seem to be the only capable, only animal, only creature in the entire known universe that is capable of both asking that question and answering it. I'm not going to try to get too trippy, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I think there are certain species of animals that they know and they're just like living their purpose because they instinctively know. But that's that's for another podcast. Yeah. Well, I saw a dolphin the other day here in San Diego. You know, like uh, chewing on a, on some sand uh, off off the coast here. So you know, I mean, I'm sure there are. There's certainly intelligence, and I, and I don't want to say that, yeah. that there isn't intelligence. But yeah. we're the only type of uh, of animal. I always say that we we came from bacteria to create Bach. You know, right. we came from rocks to create Rachmaninoff. And those things are deeply important to what it means to be human beings. Absolutely. And, and so that's why I think it's, it's important to do this. The other thing I was going to, um, we had talked a little bit off air about, you know, academia and the plight of the entrepreneur and how a lot of times it's misunderstood or even overlooked. Talk to me a little bit about that. Because, I mean, obviously you're, you're in research, which sometimes gets, again, confused as academia for the sake of academia. 
Tell me a little bit about that, that journey of the entrepreneur and academia. Yeah, so it's very little known or appreciated that scientists such as myself, really almost any professor at a research university, one that's granting PhDs to you know the students that I mentor or uh, similar, we have to be a small business person. We have to have a payroll. We have travel. We have expenses. We have logistics. In my case, I have experimental equipment. I have supplies. I have receivables. I don't really, you know, make a profit. <laughs> you know, I don't send out bills to people. But uh, but my my currency, the lucre of my field, are publications and citations and dissemination of knowledge to the public. Because you, your listeners are effectively paying most of my salary and those are the people that work for me by your tax dollars. And I hope your, your, your listeners are paying their taxes because the universe can last a long time and the IRS is relentless as nature herself. So uh, be careful out there. But uh, in our case, we have this huge supply chain to get, I mean, imagine just trying to get a single uh, nut thousand feet above sea level, uh, 8,000 miles away from San Diego or, you know, or from Europe or Japan, and it has to get there right on time. And it has to be part of another object that has maybe 3 million other components that go into it. That's going to need to last for five to 10 years in a climate that has half the atmospheric pressure that you're breathing right now. Uh, and then it's going to produce a petabyte of data. So we're talking a million megabytes or a thousand, you know, iPhones worth of data every year. Uh, uh, sorry, a million iPhone uh, gigabytes uh, of, sorry, a terabyte of data every day uh, for a year. And it's going to do that over, as I said, hopefully about 10 years. So that is a huge supply chain. We have to do that. And I say it's a huge challenge for us to accomplish that, but it's worth it because you know, for us entrepreneurs of the cosmos, the Big Bang was the startup of them all. It really began everything in the universe. So it's natural that we should have an entrepreneurial spirit since we're involved in the biggest startup of them all. So this is actually a really great tee up then for your book. Uh, losing the Nobel Prize, obviously in the title is one of the reasons why you wrote it. But uh, talk to me the origins of like, I, you know, A, what the, 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 the crux of the book, but like when you decided why you really needed to write this. Yeah, so the Nobel Prize in science is like the Oscar in movie theater, in movie uh, uh, business. It's it's the type of accolade that has no equal. And in sense, some sense, it may even be more prestigious than the Oscar because it's, you know, really awarded to anyone on earth, not just, you know, someone who makes films, etc. So uh, there are six categories it's awarded for. One of them is physics, my field. And uh, for many years, I was really captivated by this award because it held the promise of being the superlative, unrivaled, best physicist uh, that there is on Earth, or one of the handful that are still alive. So Nobel Prizes were began in 1901, following the death of Alfred Nobel, who himself was a small businessman. Actually, he became a big businessman. He invented dynamite and became one of Europe's richest men. And that tool was used mo mainly for destruction, you know, blowing things up. Some of his applications were military. And he was accused of being, you know, one of the biggest warmongers of the, of the 19th century. To rehabilitate his image, he endowed this prize called the Nobel Prize. And it was to be given away to researchers and peacemakers and writers that contributed the most benefits to humanity in the preceding year. And uh, as I uh, note in the book, throughout the last hundred years since his death and since the invocation of the Nobel Prize, 
its prestige has grown exponentially uh, such that, you know, nowadays Nobel Prize winners are really held in the highest esteem that society has. If anybody knows a scientist besides Neil deGrasse Tyson um, or, you know, or the late Stephen Hawking, it's probably, you know, they've heard the phrase Nobel Prize. And so they're incredibly influential on society. And I believe that that was the key. In fact, I was told by other physicists and professors that that was the key to being a good scientist was to win a Nobel Prize or be involved in a quest that could win a Nobel Prize. And what could be a bigger thing to discover than the origin of the universe itself and how that unfolded? So in 2001, I started to design an experiment called BICEP, which had its eyes on the Nobel Prize, in part uh, for me personally. And with other colleagues at Caltech in Pasadena, I and, and they built this experiment, which we took down to the very bottom of the world, the South Pole, Antarctica, which is a very harrowing place to get to. And it's a very forbidding, scary place to go to in some sense. I described kind of the travelogue in the book of how, how one gets there, why we're there, and uh, what it's like to actually be there. We got there, we actually observed with BICEP and its successor instrument called BICEP2, which made a discovery, and we announced this in 2014, St. Patrick's Day 2014, that we had discovered the very spark, if you will, that ignited the Big Bang, something called inflation. And this, this epoch was really the impetus to put the bang in the Big Bang. And that day, it was heralded as the greatest discovery, perhaps, of all time, and certain to win Nobel Prizes for those that played a role. And since I had created the experiment, my idea is what it sprang from back in 2001, uh, my colleagues and I were, you know, seemingly shoo-ins to win it. But as I note in the book, sometimes scientists like myself are so captivated by both the uh, allure of awards and, and, and prizes. And I, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it, but, but that was part of my original motivation, as I said, uh, in addition to wanting to understand how the universe unfolded. So, you know, scientists are no different than quote unquote, normal people. I mean, we are human beings. We're not dispassionate robots. And some of what drives us uh, are these kind of earthly base desires, at least uh, speaking only for myself. So we announced this discovery. And then later, we had to retract the discovery. We had to take this claim back and walk back the, the uh, bold statements that we had captured the earliest evidence for the formation of the universe. And that was deeply embarrassing for me. Uh, we weren't wrong. We didn't make a blunder. We didn't leave the lens cap on the telescope or put our thumb in front of it. That's not how this happened. We measured something exquisitely accurately, but it wasn't the Big Bang itself. It was actually uh, an imposter signal that mimicked the signal that we were trying to find. And the signal that we actually ended up seeing was none other than the most prosaic, boring substance in the entire universe that litters our galaxy, and it's called dust. Cosmic dust is, is are tiny, fine particles of metal and uh, that are aligned by the galaxy's magnetic field and can exactly mimic and, and be an imposter signal for the Big Bang itself. And this tricked me and tricked our, our team into thinking we had captured what we wanted to see in the beginning. And so we had to uh, retract, as I said, the claim of detection. And so at that point, we lost the Nobel Prize. At least I felt I lost the Nobel Prize, my best chance for winning it. Uh, had had evaporated in a cloud of dust. And I think it's quite, you know, it's quite telling that when something becomes your highest goal, that sometimes people like me fixate on that goal. And it was funny, I was on a podcast with um, Scott Eastwood. He's 
Clint Eastwood, the director, actor's famous, famous actor's son. And he's an actor in his own right. And I was on his show and I was selling, trying to compare the Nobel Prize in Science to the Oscars, the Academy Awards in his field. And I said, look, you know, Scott, nobody, you know, in the movie Hollywood business really thinks that a movie, you know, that's a silly movie like The Fast and the Furious is going to win an Oscar, but they make it anyway. And then they use the proceeds from those, you know, silly, trivial, futile blockbusters to fund the artsy, more interesting projects that can win Oscars. And he said, well, actually, I was in Fast and the Furious. So, uh, okay. Uh, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> we, we professors are, are lucky because we our, our words are always very sweet just in case we have to eat them. <laughs> well, I, I, as, a, uh, as a teacher and a parent that really pushes, um, trial and error and being transparent, I mean, I love the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's like, I think it's somewhat ironic that it was an imposter signal uh i like the fact that your ideas went to dust like cosmic dust um but but no i mean like that's kind of the the cool thing is like you guys were out there trying to be bold made a bold claim and when it and when it didn't turn out you're like okay we own it and yeah that 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 obviously like like i well actually i have to ask in the startup world you're celebrated for that in the science world did you take a small credibility hit right exactly that's a very good point you know the motto is, you know, fail early, fail often, you know, kind of in Silicon Valley up the road from here. Um, in science, it's much more embarrassing and humiliating more often than not. And sometimes careers don't recover. And part of the reason I was reluctant to write the book in the first place is because I knew while well, I had tenure, other members of the team didn't, and maybe it would impact them. And, and luckily it didn't. And as I said, you know, we didn't make a blunder. There were previous experiments to ours that claimed things like you know, discovering extraterrestrial fossil life or, you know, and those kinds of claims evaporated and the careers of those people, you know, took severe credibility hits, as you say. In our case, we did something so spectacular that the technology was cre- was actually so advanced that we're now merely upgrading it in order to learn lessons from that episode that you can't only look for what you want to see, that you also have to simultaneously look for what you don't want to see. So in other words, you want to you want to be careful, and you want to have the humility, as Gandhi said. You know, Gandhi is a wonderful philosopher too, and he said, you know, that the seeker after truth should be humbler than dust, because most people crush dust under their feet, and so they disrespect it. But a seeker after truth, Gandhi said, should be humbler than the dust. That dust could crush him, and in fact, it crushed my Nobel Prize aspirations. But in the end, I came out with a newfound awe and respect for nature for science and for the scientific method, which is not really present in the startup community. Yeah, I, I, I like, I like that. Um, matter of fact, it kind of, there's been a couple of um, podcasts and other things I've been listening to about the science community, sometimes not moving too fast. Now, obviously sometimes when there's lives online, you have to be super, super, super um, measured. Uh, but one of the most extraordinary things I've seen where kind of art met the science where um there's this, uh, there's a strange band uh, that I like called the Eels, and uh, Mark Everett is the is the lead singer. Actually, really, the Eels is just Mark, <laughs> but his dad um, basically came up with parallel universe theory, and was made fun of and laughed at and laughed out of the science community, and um, he committed suicide, and then years later they're like, wait, he was right. 
And it was just kind of interesting because they, they did this wonderful PBS, um, I think it was Frontline. And it was kind of uh, it was kind of interesting. It was really kind of cathartic for the for the the son, the singer, because he's like, "Man, this is therapeutic." Because my dad was, you know, he lost his career over, you know, basically he took a stand. And obviously, parallel universe sounds weird, but he, you know, mathematically showed it. And but it just kind of was one of those interesting stories that sometimes uh, the science community has to take some risks, or yeah. like we've always thought this way. And for you to think otherwise, well, I mean, heck, I mean, that's every great scientist in the history, right? You know, the world is not flat. Oh, bullshit. Uh, how dare you? Um, but so I'm you know, like, I'm sitting there listening to this. I'm like, dude, how bold. Yeah, it sucks that like it was dust, but good on you, man. And then, yeah. and, and then I always say, you know, if you have, if you have nothing to learn from, a, uh, you know, if you have no humility, then failure leads to humiliation. Yeah. But if you if you do have humility, then failure can lead to discovery. And for my case, it led to a discovery that the Nobel Prize of all things, Don, which I never expected as a as a scientist, a rational person, is actually a form of idol worship that scientists engage in. And you yes. might think that is ironic as I do too. And part of the reason why Everett, as you said, commits suicide. And I mean, he is so brilliant, so far ahead of his time. And nowadays we're just appreciating. And there are some connections. Maybe I'll come back some other time and talk about this mysterious thing called the multiverse, which you're talking about parallel universes, deeply entwined with what Everett um, came up with. But in, 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 in the research that we're doing, this, this inflationary universe is deeply inextricably linked, linked to the multiverse, which is mm. just mind-blowing, that a tiny grain of dust can obscure a glimpse into something which represents an infinite number of other universes. I mean, who mm. could ever write such incredible fiction? But it's true. It's a true story. And if you learn nothing from it, you just say, oh, we failed, we lost, let's close up shop. Um, I think, you know, I, I wanted to, I thought that would be a terrible lesson for my kids, for students who are like children to me, and and also to the scientific community that we didn't do any, we didn't make a blunder. We overreached in our in our interpretation, uh, but the game is still out there to be played. And we, and the BICEP team, which I'm not as deeply involved with anymore, I'm leading a new project called the Simons Observatory in Chile, which will complement the BICEP observations. They're going ahead full steam and good on them because they're, they're doing great work. But, you know, the, there are so many parallels, speaking of parallel universes, between this business world and I think <clears throat> and the scientific world. It's just so widely underappreciated that mm. I thought it was really important. I discussed in the book kind of the – there's the same pettiness that takes place, Don. You know, there's yeah. competition. Yeah, the heroes of fire, you know, heroes of ice. Yeah. Yeah, there's only one, you know, there's fear of missing out. There's, you know, kind of this this interpretation that you're going to get screwed out of stuff. But as I always say, you know, there's 500 Fortune 500 companies, but there's only one Nobel Prize. It's the monopoly of all monopolies. Yeah. Well, and, and even you discovering, like, you know, some problems within uh, the cash and credit problem. Interesting. Um, matter of fact, you want to weigh in on that a little bit? Yeah. So, so what happens with the Nobel prize is that, um, unfortunately, let's say you have a, you know, a, a company and you have many, many people a part of it and they all get stock options and they all become rich in the Nobel prize. Uh, originally Alfred Nobel only wanted a single person, probably a man and, and mostly only all but three out of the 200 plus people who have won the Nobel prize are men, uh, in physics. And he wanted a single man to win the Nobel prize every year for a discovery that he made the previous year 
that had the greatest benefit to mankind. <laughs> so you might wonder, wonder rightfully so, as you sort of hinted at, you know, why, why is this like beneficial to mankind? I mean, dynamite has benefits, you know, the x-ray machine, the uh, MRI machines, these have all won Nobel Prizes. They, they are incredibly important and beneficial. Of course, they can be used for evil too, you know, nuclear weapons, et cetera. Uh, but, uh, on the, you know, in the, in the case of the Nobel Prize, only one person, you know, he thought should win it. And nowadays they expanded it so, so radically to three people. Now, on the BICEP project, there are 49 scientists. On the Simons Observatory, we have 257 scientists. On the LIGO experiment that won it uh, two years ago, they had uh, 1,064 people and only three people won it. So how do you apportion credit and what does that do for the morale of the team? What does that do after the Nobel Prize has been awarded? How does that affect and afflict people? And I want to explore that. That's the credit aspect. And the cash aspect is sort of when you win a Nobel Prize, you get this immense power to kind of be the thought leader in the field. And it's just like having, you know, the world's richest men and women. They have incredible power, outsized power. And with that power comes tremendous responsibility. And I don't know if they, but I know for sure the Nobel Prize foundations itself do not adhere to that or do not really uh, take it as to heart in the way that they could influence society by a few simple rule changes that I propose in the book. Now, I should say, most of the book is a memoir. It's not really a story of the Nobel Prize or Alfred Nobel. There's plenty of books written about him. But it's a story about how a young scientist became captivated by this idol, and then it led him to, to these great lengths around the earth, to the bottom of the planet. And it's a personal story of what it feels like to do science at that level and fall short of your goals. Because I realize most people don't get into the promised land that they have set for themselves, you know, whether it's teacher of the year, or, you know, entrepreneur, you know, the best under 40, Oscar winner, whatever. So how do you handle those setbacks, that friction, that adversity? How do you handle those things in life? That's what defines your character. Yeah. So, um, other than the book, you've got some other cool things going on media wise, uh, care to share those. Yeah, I do a lot of stuff online with online education. I make a lot of videos. I do interviews with brilliant authors, some scientists, some science fiction writers, some ordinary business men and women, some um, fast and the furious cast members. Fast and the furious. Yeah. So <laughs> I've got, uh, I have a website and I have a mailing list and what I thought I'd offer to your uh, to your listeners is if you sign up for my mailing list, you go to briankeating.com. There'll be a pop-up or a splash screen at some point. You'll uh, sign up for a newsletter uh, to be part of my mailing list and my YouTube channel, hopefully too. And if you do, and you sign up your name, use your normal first name, but in your last name, put up uh, started up, I will send your U.S. based listeners uh, a free piece of space dust. <laughs> I will send you a meteorite, a tiny little fragment of outer space to the first 10 listeners that sign up for my mailing list with started up as their last name in the sign up sheet. That's they crazy. will receive a genuine rock that's 4.8 billion years old that was floating around the Milky Way galaxy until it impacted and crashed down to Earth. And I'll send some information along with it. So for the first 10 of your listeners to do that today, that would be uh, their gift for signing up for my mailing list. That's and, cool. Yeah. And then please join <laughs> my YouTube channel as well, which is Dr. Brian Keating. I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. And uh, I love uh, science education. That's really my deepest passion. Maybe the thought I'll leave you with today, and, and hopefully we can do this again, Don. It's been really fun. I got to get to class myself soon. 
But the, uh, the thing I want to leave you with is that the word scientist in Russian, the, in, in, in Russian, it translates into a person who was taught. And I learned that relatively early in my career. And it's really influenced me because it, to me, it speaks of two things. It means that to be a scholar, to be a scientist, to seek knowledge, you have to be humble. You have to apprentice yourself to somebody else. But then you also have an obligation to be a part of that ever unfurling chain where you speak to others and you teach others. And I think that holds for scientists. I think that holds for mentors and mentees. And, 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 uh, and I think you know, all of us can learn that lesson of the kind of servant teacher that gives but receives by teaching his or her students. I think that's one of the deepest lessons that I want to leave your listeners with. That's awesome. Well, I, Brian, I appreciate you being on. I like the where innovation meets science, which is funny. <laughs> like, I feel innovation is science, but the speed of innovation and in science, learning how to make some mistakes fast, learning how to adapt, uh, and then being transparent about it all. I, I love it. And also, I got to say, you win the award for most unusual giveaway. Uh, a, a, a million year old rock. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so yeah, there it is. Take take advantage of it. Uh, sign up for the guy's mailing list and get a get a piece of ancient 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 history. So yeah, right. well, yep. thank okay, you. Well, thank you so much for 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 being on and uh, best of luck in the future. Thank you so much, Don. Take care. <laughs>